Good morning, everyone. And you can all repeat this after me. I encourage you to. Happy Mother's Day. Our scripture today is the 139th Psalm. I'm going to be reading um, as it is written in the message. God, investigate my life. Get all the facts firsthand. I'm an open book to you. Even from a distance, you know what I'm thinking. You know when I leave and when I get back. I'm never out of your sight. You know everything I'm going to say before I start the first sentence. I look behind me and you're there. Then up ahead and you're there too. Your reassuring presence coming and going. This is too much, too wonderful. I can't take it all in. Is there any place I can go to avoid your spirit, to be out of your sight? If I climb to the sky, you're there. If I go underground, you're there. If I flew on morning's wings to the far western horizon, you'd, you'd find me in a minute. You're already there waiting. Then I said to myself, oh, he even sees me in the dark. At night, I'm immersed in the light. In fact, it's a fact. Darkness isn't dark to you. Night and day, darkness and light, they're all the same to you. Oh, yes, you shaped me first inside, then out. You formed me in my mother's womb. I thank you, high God. Your breathtaking body and soul, I am marvelously made. I worship in adoration. What a creation. You know me inside and out. You know every bone in my body. You know exactly how I was made bit by bit. Like an open book, you watched me grow from conception to birth. All of the stages of my life were spread out before you. The days of my life all prepared before I'd even, uh, I'd even lived one day. Your thoughts, how rare, how beautiful, God, I'll never comprehend them. I couldn't even begin to count any more than I could count the sands of the sea. Oh, let me rise in the morning and live always with you. And please, God, do away with the wickedness for good. And you murderers, out of here. All of you men and women who belittle you, God, infatuated with cheap God imitations, see how I hate those who hate you, God? See how I loathe all this godless arrogance? I hate it with pure, unadulterated hatred. Your enemies are my enemies. Investigate my life, O oh God. Find out everything about you. Cross-examine and test me. Get a picture of what I'm about. See for yourself whether I've done anything wrong. Then guide me on the road to eternal life. Amen. There is a pattern in the Bible when it comes to individuals. They seem to often start out with great potential, but end up not being able to live up to the the potential. Gideon, Moses, Solomon, they have, were all, 
uh, Gideon, Moses, and Solomon all have a point where they make a mistake and they go off the path that God laid before them. For some, like Moses, they manage to kind of come back in line. But even so, for Moses, he was unable to enter into the promised land because of his disobedience. For others, like Gideon and Solomon, they kind of just kept walking deeper and deeper into sin and ended up destroying the legacy that their children would inherit. But of all the characters in the Bible who really struggle to live up to the promise of their youth, I think David is the one that we see struggling the hardest, if only because he's given a lot more room than most characters. Now, in the beginning, David shows great promise as a man who will lead God's people as their king. His predecessor, Saul, struggled with being obedient, struggled with trusting that God would be there. But David throws himself into hardship after hardship and battle after battle, knowing that God will lead him to triumph. And when he is offered choices, he makes his decision with his compass firmly fixed upon God and refuses to even entertain the idea of going against God's will. David's faith and life are in alignment. His heart is one with God's teachings. But then consider the 24th and the 26th chapters of 1 Samuel. Life was not going well for David at this point in his life. He had just experienced a great fall. Now, not long before, he had been leading, well, sort of leading Israel. He had been a man of great importance at the very least. He slew Goliath. He was raised to become a general, won a great many battles. He also married Michal, um, Saul's youngest daughter, officially becoming one of Saul's family members. He also formed an incredibly close relationship with Jonathan, Saul's heir apparent. The Bible even tells us that the two of them loved each other as they loved themselves. They were so close. Because of all of this, Saul became fearful of David and began to plot his death. But thanks to Jonathan and David's quick thinking, David managed to escape, originally running to the Philistines and then into the wilderness. He wasn't alone, though. In the wilderness, he was joined by his very large family and a lot of random men who was a mixture of what we kind of consider like Robin Hood-esque merry band. You know, they were debtors and discontents or people who just were supporters of David. But he was no longer a general. He was no longer living in the, pal in the, um, in the palace of his father-in-law. I guess the former father-in-law. After all, after David had run away, Saul decided to marry Michal off to another husband. Now he was hunting David. And he kind of caught him. Sort of. Not really, but technically. It happened in a place that's known as the Crags of the Wild Goats. Don't ask me where that is. I just know that's what they call it. 
But at the crags, there were some sheep pens where sheep and goats were kept in in these caves. And David happened to be hiding in the back of one of these caves with some of his men when Saul and his army showed up. When I say army, don't think thousands upon thousands of men. Think a few hundred. But still, they didn't know it, but they cornered David in the back of this cave. But what ends up happening is truly spectacular in the annals of history. Saul, unaware that David is so close, goes into the cave to relieve himself. Bible's words. Putting himself in extreme danger. Completely unknowing, of course. Some of David's men who are hiding there with him encouraged him to go kill Saul. This is a gift from God, they said. Your enemy has been delivered into your hands. Slay him. So David snuck up close, drawing his blade and cut off a strip of Saul's cloak. Then he returned to his men and admonished them. This is God's anointed king. This is the man I swore to obey and protect. I may be running from him, but I do not wish him any ill will, and it is wrong, sinful, to strike out at God's anointed one. Saul finished his business, and he left the cave only to hear his name being called. Saul, my king, my lord. He turned around and he looked, and there was David lying prostrate upon the entrance, the entrance of the cave. The two of them engage in conversation, and David stands up and shows the strip of cloth that he had cut from, from Saul's cloak, showing Saul just how close he had gotten, just how close to death Saul had been. He offers this as evidence that he harbors no ill intent against Saul. Saul is ashamed, ashamed of his actions, ashamed of his false beliefs that David was there to usurp him, and instead he blesses David, and he goes back to Gibeah. Okay, if you're standing there, or sitting there, I'm the only one standing right now. Yeah, if you're sitting there and going, well... Okay, let me play devil's advocate. This is the kind of thing I do when I read scripture. I go, okay, let's take it out of the context and, and kind of go over it again. To be fair, David is in the back of a cave surrounded by an army. What other choice did he have? He could have killed Saul, but then what would happen is he's stuck in the cave with, David, with Saul's entire army standing outside. Eventually, someone's going to come in and check it happen, what happened with Saul. That's not a good thing. Even if David is a mighty warrior and he manages to escape, a bunch of his men and some of his cousins and brothers who are there with him would die. Of course, he could have done nothing. But him cutting off that strip of cloak was a remarkable move because it not only showed Saul how close to death he had come, but it would convince him that he was not a threat and therefore would stop hunting him. It was the best option. Okay, I get that. I get that line of reasoning, but we can't stop there. 
That's why we have the 26th, the story that happens in the 26th chapter. Again, Saul is hunting David out in the wilderness. Now, in these days, it was pretty uncommon for armies, especially in this space, to ever carry tents with them. I mean, we didn't have the kind of way, you know, where you have those poles that are all nice and light and bendy and you just go straight them out. No, when you carried poles, you were carrying chunks of wood and make them in light. Of course, there were animal skins too, which are a lot heavier than canvas. So unless it was a really rainy season, you usually didn't carry a tent with you on these expeditions. Instead, they just laid out in the open. The king would lie in the very middle, surrounded by his generals and then bodyguards, and then the army would lie around them in a great big circle, forming a barrier between the king and their leaders and, well, the wilderness, any animals or bandits or rebels that were, might come in. And, of course, on the outside edge were the sentries whose job was to stay awake, while Saul is sleeping in the middle of this giant circle of the army. And David and his nephew, who will later be a general, Abishai, manage to sneak by the entries, the sentries, and get all the way through this mass of sleeping people to the very center to stand over the man who had been hunting them. Abishai says to David, just as the men in the cave did, take that spear, Saul's own spear, and kill him. You can do it in one thrust. David picks up the spear. And then he reaches down and he picks up Saul's water jug. Again, he reminds them, it's not my place to kill him. He is God's anointed one. I will break my oath if I harm him. It is a wrong thing to do. Mind you, while in the case of the cave, I would argue that it was a strategic important decision for him not to get involved and to kill Saul. Here, let's face it, David was a seasoned warrior at this point. He could have done it and gotten out without anyone knowing. He managed to get all the way there. And so he and Abishai pick their way back through the army, and after they've gone a little distance, he turns around and he calls out to Abner, which is Saul's general, and wakes him up and berates him for allowing David to get so close. Saul recognizes again how close he had been to death. And again, he is ashamed of his actions and false beliefs. And again, he blesses his quarry and quits his hunt. Twice, twice David shows a purity of heart. Though he is avoiding... Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And though he is avoiding the king, he does not wish to kill him. He will not violate his oath as a soldier and, or the oil that Saul, uh, Samuel poured on him when he was anointed king as God's command. Why is David like this? Well, we get a glimpse into his heart in the 139th Psalm. That was our reading today. It's attributed to David, and, 
And we don't really know anything beyond that. It's not told when it was written. It doesn't have anyone's names listed in it. As some of them do, you can kind of figure out what it's about. But through these lyrics, David returns again and again to God's omnificence, God's all-knowingness. But it isn't that God knows all that happens on earth. God knows the very thoughts that we have. God knows our deepest and darkest desires, those thoughts that run contrary to our faith, those secrets that are so buried that even we can barely remember them. David is zealous for the Lord. Zealous being he has an intense passion and a vigorous devotion to God. His zeal will not allow him to even consider sinning against God. He knows that he can call on God to search his heart and then he will pass with flying colors. Jesus calls us to be like this too. You find it over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount. That's Matthew 5 and 7. For instance, 5, 21, 22. You have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be a subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, worthless trash, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus commands us to bring in line not only our actions with the way of the kingdom, but our very thoughts. He makes this command several times over concerning different things, but the same basic command, this expectation that we will understand the importance of keeping both our minds and hearts and actions in line with the way of the kingdom. It's a dangerous prayer to call on God to search our hearts. We know our failings, the times that we have murdered others in our thoughts, the times that we have objectified the beautiful child of God, the times we have daydreamed terrible behavior, Lord knows I do it enough when I watch the news, though I try not to. It's dangerous to call on God to view all these things. I know I cannot pass this test. And I think there are very few, if none, that can. It's an impossibly high standard to live. So why do it? Why should we call on God to search our very hearts? As the psalmist says, and this is from the NIV translation now, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the mountains, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawns, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. 
To say this dangerous prayer isn't to call upon God to do something new, but to recognize that God is already doing so and has been doing so. It is to remind us to work towards these impossibly high standards, even if we can't reach them. It is inviting God to dredge up those thoughts and memories that do not bring glory to the kingdom so that we may work on bettering ourselves in our path forward. And I'll add that it's a prayer that needs to be said regularly. It's apparent in David's life. As I said, it's a pattern in the Bible where great, especially men, start out well and fail as they go. Can't say why exactly, but I have my theory in here. From the time he was first called as a musician to play for Saul when Saul was in really bad moods, spear-chucking moods, to be fair, from that time um, until he became the king and unified the 12 tribes and conquered Jerusalem and made it his political and religious center um, in installing the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant there. Until that time, things were uh, not great for David often. He had high moments, but his life was in constant danger. He always had to watch over his shoulder for Saul and Saul's folks, for the Philistines, the Amalekites, the bandits, not to mention all the things that could kill you when you live out in the wilderness like the lions and tigers and bears and cliffs and snakes and all that fun stuff. He had to keep himself sharp lest he stumble, either losing God's blessing as Saul had once done or losing his life to a dumb mistake. For in Samuel 2, after he is done settling in Jerusalem and he starts raising a family there, David slips up big. We all know the story. The man now has everything he could possibly want. And as he sits, stands there upon his, uh, upon his roof in the cooling, uh, the cooling evening, he looks out and he spies Bathsheba bathing. He objectifies, objectifies and covets her. His thoughts are allowed to run, and those thoughts become actions, and those actions lead to one after another after another of the Ten Commandments being broken. It will begin a pattern. It will begin a pattern of death, of rebellion, of war. Until, at last, David's end comes. And even then, even then as David comes to his deathbed, there is war raging around him as his own children kill each other. When David no longer had to rely on God, when David no longer had to keep sharp, he stopped doing so. And he became dull. And if you know anything about working with a knife, a dull knife is the most dangerous one because it's the one that slips and cuts you. So let's not be like David. 
Let's keep ourselves sharp and keep praying this dangerous prayer. Let's keep working on how we think, because when we think something, that is the first step towards action. Just as Jesus warned, do not hate, because hate will lead to action. Do not covet. Do not so on and so forth. So, pray this dangerous prayer. Recognize that God is already looking at your heart and ask that you spend that time looking at your own heart, recognizing where you are failing and where you can do better, praying to God to help you come in line with the way of the kingdom. There's one thing that makes David special, though, among all the great people who make mistakes and don't live up to their potential. David always says, I'm sorry. David always says, I messed up. David goes back to God and says, give me another chance. So, while you may get dull like David, try not to. But know when you do, pray a little on it, even if it's a little dangerous. We are continuing our journey over these dangerous prayers. Last week, we considered the Lord's Prayer and just how dangerous that one is. This week, we consider how dangerous it is to call upon God to search us. But in both of those, we recognize that they are important. Important in our faith, and important in our journey. So we engage. I think I might try and do this every Sunday, and hopefully I won't mess it up, but I invite you to close in the Lord's Prayer with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.